Let's pray together. Father, would you now in these moments give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of your word? Would you speak to our hearts and sanctify us by it and your spirit? Challenge us and encourage us, convict us and comfort us, and as always, grant me the ability to communicate in a way that honors you with fluency and fervency and grace. I ask that you would use me as you see fit, and I pray these things for Christ's sake and for his church. Amen. Well, I believe more and more Christians are increasingly misunderstood in our culture today. I believe we are considered by others to be misguided. We are casualties of misrepresentation. We're the objects of misinformation. And we're the targets of mistrust. Sometimes it's purposeful and malicious. Sometimes it's accidental. Sometimes it's out of ignorance. Sometimes it's just due to laziness. But we also have to be honest and admit that we aid and abet um, some of those things or some of those problems um, because we don't communicate clearly, right? We miscommunicate. But we have to be honest and know that um, even if we communicated perfectly, right, and, and did everything as we were supposed to do, and we, and we even walked more consistently um, or on a more consistent basis, we, we we walk the talk more consistently. Um, apart from God's Spirit, the world would still reject what we believe. And it would, the conflict would remain. And this is why 1 Peter is, is perfect, right? It's, it's such a relevant letter for us today. Paul wrote, as you know by now, Paul wrote to Christians whom he called exiles and sojourners who were living in a foreign society and a culture to which they uh, did not fit, and they, uh, to which they did not belong. They were out of place. And his goal was to correct uh, habits um, and patterns that were associated with unregenerate lifestyles, he wrote to help Christians do at least their part to reduce the animosity that non-Christians had toward them. And of course, he wrote to help them bolster their gospel witness. And of course, all those things are true for us tonight. And we're going to look at three things in this passage from verse 8 to 22 where he does those, those things. We're going to look at our service we're going to look at our suffering, and then we're going to look at our Savior. You'll find the outline in its normal place. Children, you'll find your words in their normal place as well. Let's begin first with our service. And when I say our service, I'm really talking about how we treat other people. Um, look at verse 8, because he, where he begins, in verse 8 he begins with helping us um, in how we treat one another as the body of Christ. Look at verse 8. He says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. The congregations in the provinces there, uh, or the Greco-Roman provinces of Asia Minor, um, were made up of a wide variety of people from a wide variety of places, from a wide variety of backgrounds, 
Um, there were some that were from the local area. There were some that had been dispersed to the area. There were uh, Jews in the area, but most of them were, were Gentiles. And, but despite all of these differences, they had at least one thing in common, and that was they had all been born again to a living hope. They had all been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. God had made them adoptable. He had adopted them into His family, and so now they were all brothers and sisters. And the question was, how could they come alongside one another and and bear up under the stress and the strain that was created by the informal persecution that they were undergoing? the pressure that they were experiencing to conform to the social and and political and religious practices of their pagan culture. And at the same time, how could they bear up knowing that the more formalized persecution was growing and escalating in Rome and was um, looming on the horizon? What could they do? How could they keep the pressure that was being exerted from outside the church from affecting the relationships inside the church. And Peter said it would begin by having a unity of mind. They were to be like-minded. In other words, that meant that they needed to have a common understanding of the truth. And of course, that presupposes that there was an an objective standard of truth that could be believed, and it could be agreed upon. Therefore, there was no room for varying degrees of truth. There was no room for subjective truth, right? So there was no, and I'm really tired of hearing this today, but there was no no place for my truth and your truth and their truth. They were to be united in their belief by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone gospel. But the unity was not, wasn't just to be on an intellectual level, right? He, he said they also needed to have sympathy for one another. In, in other words, they needed to be concerned about one another, but it was more than that. Um, to use Paul's words, they needed to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn, for, or mourn with those who mourn or grieve for, with those who grieve or weep with those who weep. They needed to enter into one another's lives in order to Um, to come alongside one another and and to double the joy and to half the sorrow and to carry the burdens that were common among them all. He he said there should also be brotherly love, and this wasn't merely an emotion of generous warmth and affection. It was actually a commitment to self-sacrifice, the self-sacrifice that they needed so that they could do what was in the best interest of one another. And to that, he added a tender heart or compassion. This is a deep, a deep, deep affection for someone else that arises when that someone else is in the midst of distress. And that affection was so deep that it it compels us to action, right? We want to go meet the one in distress so that we can help alleviate it. And then Peter said that we should have a humble mind. And this is opposite of pride and conceit that comes from immaturity and seeks to promote oneself. A humble mind is resolute. Make no mistake, a humble mind is resolute when it comes to the truth. 
but for the sake of unity, a humble mind is able to teach, advocate for, and defend the truth without the serrated edge and abrasive nature of arrogance and condescension. And brothers and sisters, in the midst of this culture in which we live, in the midst of all that's going on around us, in the midst of a culture that has disdain for the truth, and in which cries, uh, a culture that cries foul at any assertion for truth, and a culture that is intolerant of anyone who seeks to uphold the truth, we need to heed Peter's words, and we need to humbly rally around the truth. And we need to treat one another sympathetically, lovingly, and compassionately. Our goal should be to win, um, to help those, not win, help those within our body to understand the gospel more fully, to understand the Word of God more fully in general. Our goal is not to prove that we are right and that others are wrong and to leave and to leave a string of casualties behind us. Well, that's verse 8. In verse 9, he addresses how they are to treat non-believing neighbors and how we are to treat non-believing neighbors. He says, Do not repay evil for evil for, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for, this is, uh, for, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, this, this sounds familiar, I know, and this is going to happen several times tonight, but uh, this is similar to what he said back in chapter 2, right? Uh, to use the language from chapter 2, we are to, uh, Christ is our template, right? He is the one we are to model. Um, uh, Christ, Christians are to model the example of Christ, the suffering servant, he said in chapter 2 from Isaiah 53, uh, who never responded in kind when he experienced uh, angry criticism or when he was abusively insulted. When mistreated by non-believers, we as um, believers have no right to retaliate or to seek revenge or retribution. Those aren't appropriate options. We're not given those marching orders anywhere. But we don't simply refrain from something. We're to do the opposite. So we don't simply refrain from wielding the sword of judgment and condemnation. We actually bless. Right? And that not only involves acts of kindness, it involves prayer. And we know that because Jesus himself said during the Sermon on the Mount that we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We've been called by God out of darkness into light, and we're to live in that light. When we walk in the flesh, we hurt others who hurt us, but when we walk in the Spirit, we bless those who hurt us. We're to live out of the abundance of grace that is, has been lavished upon us, right? We've been blessed, so we're to live in the reality of that blessing, and we do that by blessing others. In the words of Charles Cranfield, the divine blessing bestowed already in Christ and the inheritance God has in store for us, these are both the reason for the Christian life and the strength for it.
And then in verses 10 to 12, Peter quoted verses 12 to 16 of Psalm 34 that Grant read a moment ago. And, and his point was that we need to watch what we say. We need to keep from speaking evil. We need not to misrepresent ourselves. We should refrain from duplicity and hiding behind facades and interact with our non, as we interact with our non-Christian neighbors. We shouldn't return evil for evil in an effort to protect ourselves. We need to trust, we need to entrust ourselves to the Lord because He's better, who better to, to protect us than Him? He can protect us far better than we can protect ourselves. We should simply seek to do what is right and pursue peace. Because the psalmist said, David said that, right, the Lord is for us. Peter uses to say, the Lord is for us, and He's against those who are against us. And as we strive um, to live as we've been declared to be, which is righteous, He will bless us. He will hear our prayers. And not because we've earned it, but because He's gracious. He's promised to reward those who seek to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We've been set free to love Him and set free to love our neighbor. We've been set free from fear. We've been set free to pursue peace. We should walk in that freedom. To this we've been called. And that brings us to our suffering. Look at verse 13. He began... He began with a rhetorical question that's supposed to be answered, no one. And again, the point he was making was one that he made in chapter 2. There he said that when we suffer for sin, right, there's no value. But when we suffer unjustly, it's a gracious gift. Well, here in chapter 3, he says pretty much, or he says something very similar and begins with the same thing. He says when we suffer for our sin, there's still no value. But, he says, when we suffer unjustly, it's a blessing, and it's also an opportunity for us to defend our faith. And for Peter, the first phase or first step in our defense of our faith is to simply be zealous for good works and to live righteously. Or to put it another way, we're to be good examples of what it means to be a good law-abiding citizen. Again, there's, there's no directive to resist or revolt or retaliate. In Paul's words, we're to live peaceful, quiet lives. We're to be godly and dignified in every way. And knowing that we're being kept by the Lord and that our future is secure. There's no reason for us to fear or be troubled. There's no reason for us to live in a state of worry and unsettledness. Instead, Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. See, Peter knew that it would be a good idea for Christians to be prepared before the persecution ramped up. He knew, right, that it was going to become more systemic and systematic, and, and they needed to prepare beforehand. He knew it was better to make 
decisions and commitments before they were in the heat of the moment. He wanted them to be steadfast and immovable regarding what they believed about Christ. He wanted them to be well rehearsed in how they would testify regarding who He was and and about their faith in Him before they were put to the test. And I, I don't think an explanation of the teleological and ontological and cosmological arguments of God's existence is what He had in mind. I think he was expecting them to be able not only to recite, but to explain, and and also explain something similar to the Apostles' Creed, with the Nicene Creed that we're going to confess together in just a minute, or maybe something like the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. It says, I with one body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood, is fully satisfied for all my sins, and redeem me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by His Holy Spirit, He, is, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and readily from now on to live for Him. Our Scott Clark put it succinctly when he said, Peter is not calling us as Christians to become Josh McDowell or C.S. Lewis or Cornelius Van Til. He is, however, calling us to be prepared to say what we believe and why. And Peter was not only concerned with the what, he was concerned with the how. He said our defense was to be made with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that we are, when we are slandered, those who revile our good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, we don't want to give people grounds for speaking against us. We don't want our message of grace to be undermined by self-righteous piousness and hardness, and rigidity in our delivery or attitude. We are to defend the faith, again, without the serrated edge and abrasive nature of arrogance and condescension. The message of the gospel offends on its own. We don't need to be offensive. And we need to keep in mind what Peter says in verse 17. Any suffering we have experienced or any suffering that we might endure in the future, despite all of our efforts to live quietly and peacefully and to defend our faith in gentleness and meekness, all of that suffering and persecution, all will be under the watchful eye of the Lord. It's all going to be within the scope of His providence. It's all going to be a part of His sovereign plan of redemption. And He will be working in and through it all to accomplish His purposes. To this we've been called. And that brings us to our last point, which is our Savior. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive 
in the Spirit. Again, as he did back in chapter 2, Peter brings us back to the cross. He brings us back to the cross to provide a foundation for his instruction. His, in, his instruction and encouragement regarding our suffering and regarding um, the sake of Uh, the the suffering that we experience for the sake of our Savior and our faith in Him. To use His language from chapter 2, again, Christ Himself is our template, who we are to model ourselves after, and in whose steps we're to follow. But notice, here He moves from Christ as our suffering servant to Christ our victor. In chapter 3, His argument is that Because Christ rose from the dead, we share in his triumph, right? Chapter 2, because of his death, we share in his suffering, but because he's risen from the dead, we share in his triumph. And Peter's point is clear in the words of Edmund Clowney, persecuted and suffering Christians need to remember both the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. His patient suffering will show them meekness when they are interrogated. His glorious triumph will give them courage to face their accusers. Peter said we can face those who persecute us because we have been united to Christ and we are benefactors of His perfect, once for all, full and final, atoning, substitutionary sacrifice for sins. We who are estranged from God and enemies of His have have now been reconciled because His perfectly righteous and sinless Son laid down His life and shed His blood to pay the debt that we owed for our sin. He laid down His life and shed His blood to cleanse us from the pollution and guilt of our sin. He died and was buried to appease God's wrath that was set against us because of our sin. But our salvation was not just accomplished in His death. It was also accomplished through His resurrection. He defeated sin by His death, and He defeated death by His resurrection. And that's why Paul says that if He had not ascended, if he had, or if He had not risen from the dead, we'd still be in our sin. The bottom line is Christ died in the flesh, but then He was raised to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we now have life in His name. He was victorious. We are now victorious in Him. And the question is, how can we be sure? How can we know? Look at verse 19. Carrying on from verse 18. But made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And let let me just say very quickly that every single commentator quotes Luther at this point about these two verses. Because here's what Luther said. A wonderful text is this and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. So that, this is Luther, I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. So guess what? Neither do I. But I'm 
but I'm going to tell you what I believe today, okay? In order to assure us of Christ's victory and the efficacy of um, Christ's work and our salvation, Peter went back and drew from the story of Noah. And he said that Christ, by the Spirit and through Noah, who, by the way, he'll call a herald of righteousness in the second letter. But again, Christ, by the Spirit, through Noah, preached as Noah was building the ark. So Noah was preaching, but Christ was preaching through him by the Spirit. And, and he preached to those, Peter said, who, those who were disobedient. But I think you'll remember, maybe, from our study of Genesis, that Moses wasn't as kind. Because Moses called those that Noah was preaching to wicked and corrupt and violent. He also said their hearts were perverse and their sin was pervasive and heinous and that their ungodly mockery and ridicule um, directed at Noah grew over time. And because of their unbelief and their rejection of what Noah was preaching or that Christ was preaching through Noah by the Spirit... Those souls are all now in hell. And of course, Noah was vindicated. It was in the ark that he and his family were brought safely through the waters of judgment. But we need to be clear at this point that it wasn't the water that saved Noah and his family. It was the ark. The water was an instrument of judgment, God's instrument of judgment. It was the ark that was God's instrument of salvation. And Peter's point was that our salvation and our deliverance through judgment comes in and through Christ. Christ is our ark. He is the ark of our salvation. And it's because we've been united to Him and are in Him that we are safe and secure. And our security is sure because the Lord, if you remember, has shut us in like He shut Noah in. Now look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter says that the flood points to baptism, and the baptism saves us. And to understand what he means, we have to think, we have to keep in mind three things, okay? The first is this Peter's doing what we saw God do in Genesis 17, when God called the sign of the covenant the covenant. He's also doing what Jesus did during the Last Supper when he called the bread his body and, and the wine his blood. Right? Peter is acknowledging the sacramental union between baptism and salvation. In the words of our confession, it says, In every sacrament there is a spiritual relationship or a sacramental union between the visible sign and the reality signified by it. And so it happens that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. That's, that's the first thing we need to rem- keep in mind. Secondly, there's a mystery here that we've got to pr- uh, preserve. There's a tendency to err on one of two sides. There's an tendency, uh, a tendency to collapse on one side, to collapse the sign and the thing signified so that there are those who believe that salvation, or, or I'm sorry, that, <laughs> that um, baptism is regenerative, okay? But there's an error on the other side as well. And that's to separate the thing and the thing signified. 
And, and when they separate it, there are those who believe that baptism has no spiritual effect whatsoever, even on the elect. And the, and the truth is, while everyone who is baptized is not automatically regenerated or saved, something does happen in baptism. God does something through it. To paraphrase our confession, in baptism, the, the grace that God promises is not only offered, you've heard me say this during baptism, it is not only offered, but it is really exhibited and conferred to the elect by the Holy Spirit according to the counsel of God's own will at His appointed time. And it's to be received, and it has to be received by faith. Okay? That's the second thing to keep in mind. Third, we need to remember, I know it's farther back for some of you, but we need to remember our study of Luke and Luke chapter 12, verse 50, where it says this, Jesus said this, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. We know from our study that he was referring to his crucifixion on the cross. The baptism he was to be baptized with was his own passing through the waters of divine judgment. It was a baptism in which he was washed with the waves of his own father's wrath. It was a baptism, in the words of one commentator, in which he was being plunged into the flood of pain and suffering. And he endured all of that for you and for me. He died and was buried for us. That's the third thing. Now, when we put all that together, keep all those things in mind, when we put all that together, we see that baptism saves in the sense that for those of us who, by faith, have embraced the promises of God and received the grace offered in our baptism, our baptism has become a tangible sign that points to and a seal that confirms and validates that we have been. I have that bold and in caps here. We have been united to Christ in His death and resurrection because God chose us, regenerated us by the Spirit, and gave us the gift of faith through which we received that grace that He offered. Our salvation begins and ends with God. Having been united in His death and resurrection, we died with Christ. We were buried with Christ, and we rose again with Christ. We therefore will be, again, bold, all caps, we will be saved from the judgment to come because He took our judgment upon Himself. The water of our baptism does not cleanse us from our sin. But brothers and sisters, in faith we have appealed to God to clean our consciences and to forgive us of our sins. And we did so on the basis of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. And by the power 
of the Spirit, God has kept His promise, and He did just that, and He sealed it with our baptism. And if that wasn't enough, Peter, Peter also said that Christ has gone into heaven. And is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Brothers and sisters, the bottom line is simply this. What, what should we fear? Who should we fear? I know, it, I know it, it's easy to believe today that Christ is not on His throne. I get it. Particularly with, with everything that's going on right now. I, just this week, I heard the courts, um, the state courts in Indiana allowed authorities to prevent a child from returning home um, because the parents, did not, um, the parents did not agree with um, the child's gender identity and pronoun choices because of their religious beliefs. Despite the fact that the state determined the allegations of abuse against the parents were unsubstantiated, the court decided, ruled, that any type of disagreement over gender and, the, and, and, and to not use the pronouns was considered unsafe. And so they determined that the child shouldn't go home. So I get it. I get it. But we need to remember, we need to remember that while Stephen was being stoned, he looked up and he saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father. While he was being stoned, and I know he was in the Spirit, and we look up and we don't physically see him, but that doesn't make it any less true. He is there ruling and reigning, and he will come to judge the the living and the dead. He will come and make all things right. He will bring justice where there's been injustice. He will bless those who have been treated poorly and evilly. That's a word. And He will take care of those who have not punished evil. So whatever informal or formal persecution we may undergo or you may undergo and the suffering that should come our way, Peter wants to know, wants us to know that our baptism assures us that we are secure in Christ. Our hope is in no one and nothing less than Him. Let's pray. Father, by Your Spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love, meekness and readiness of mind? Would you enable us to meditate on it and hide it in our hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in our lives? Grant us the grace of repentance and help us walk in the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. For your glory and for our good and for the sake of Christ and his church, I pray. Amen.